and welcome to another edition of the Beer Vana Podcast. Hi, Jeff. Hey, Patrick. How are you doing? Uh, I'm doing well. How are you? I'm pretty good. Spring has arrived in Portland. Very slowly. Yeah, but the, but the cherry blossoms are out. Yeah, they came out so late that uh, the, the leaves, it seems like the cherry blossoms usually precede the leaves by quite a bit, but now yeah. they're fighting with the leaves on the trees. We have a, a huge cherry tree in our backyard, and the wind blows all the little petals off and spreads them all around the neighborhood. It's kind of cool. <laughs> yeah, it's like it's snowing. Uh, spring in Portland is a wonderful time and a wonderful place to be. It is. Uh, so welcome to the Beervana Podcast. With me, of course, is Jeff Allworth, author of the newly released Secrets of Master Brewers. Congratulations. Thank you very much. As well as old favorites like The Beer Bible and Cider Made Simple. You can also find him blogging at Beervana. And with me is Patrick Emerson, professor of economics at Oregon State University. You can find him blogging at Beeronomics. Uh, the Beer Vana podcast is now hosted by our partners at All About Beer magazine, so check in there for other cool pods like... Like, I don't know. I, I know that John Hall was doing a great one called After Two, After Two Beers or something like that. Right. I thought that's what you were about to say. Uh, I was going to that one. Yeah, well, and I, I think he just posted his last one, but he has left All About Beer to, ah. to take editorship of something else, and I'm, I'm not sure what's going to happen with that pod. That's a great pod, yeah. but uh, I, think the, I think the portfolio is... Uh, growing somehow good so I, check well, into all about beer and i think we'll do the same probably, exactly probably one of us should have checked that out yeah. <laughs> i didn't expect you to throw me that question well you put it in there that's great uh all right so um all right so the topic of the pod today uh involves a lot of the chatter that has been happening lately about the business of beer last week uh was the annual annual craft brewers conference in washington dc uh where the folks at the Brewers Association addressed troubling trends in the marketplace. Um, a few weeks back, it emerged that the grocery store giant Kroger was going to devote more shelf space to big breweries uh, and less to smaller ones. And then most recently, Jim Cook of Boston Beer wrote an op-ed for the New York Times titled, ominously, The Last Call for Craft Beer? Question mark. The New York Times is now learning that you throw a question mark on anything, you get more clicks. <laughs> Bloggers learned that a long time ago. Uh, anyway, uh, this confluence of events made us think it was a perfect time to do another episode of Beeronomics. That's right. But uh, I, before we do that, I just mentioned that the New York Times hasn't quite devolved into what our local newspaper has become, which apparently is all I can uh, as, as much as I can figure out, it's basically real estate porn. <laughs> I know. So just about every day there's some... <laughs> That's true. Here's, hey. here's a whole bunch of houses that have hot tubs. Here's a whole bunch of houses that have... It's just unbelievable how it bad is. it is. Hey, this cool house sold. <laughs> there's no news here, but... Uh, uh, yeah, there's very little news left, but there's lots of clickbait. That's true. And apparently pictures of houses is about the clickiest, baitiest thing you can do if you're a local newspaper. And it's a terrible sign of the times for this market which is becoming incredibly hard and like a little mini san francisco and now people can't afford to buy houses and yes well as you know my mother just moved into my neighborhood and uh it's almost unbelievable what she had to pay for a similar house to mine so it makes me feel good about my investment um so if you hear us halting and hear banging, it's because we're having a little technical difficulties on my splitter. Yeah, and when, when, and when you say we, we're talking about Jeff, by the way. Well, we're so talking no, about... No technical difficulties We're talking here. about the producer's crappy splitter. <laughs> <laughs> it's not, not working. Uh, yeah, well, it's not like I can just throw a whole $1.99 around for a, 
I know. A new splitter, man. Come on. I know. I realize that. <laughs> You're a man of efficiencies and economies and all right. Well, uh, before we before we get to our our big topic today, which is all about um, whether craft beer, whether uh, uh, whether craft beer is doomed, uh, we have to get to the news. And in today's news, Scotland's brew dog sells twenty two. <laughs> I was trying to do this straight. Ah, man, that's some fine music there. Fine production. That Mr. is, Everson. I know. Every every pod just gets better and better. <laughs> Pretty soon. I know. All right. So Scotland's Brewdog uh, sold a twenty-two uh, percent stake uh, for two hundred and sixty-four million U.S. dollars, I guess, yeah. uh, to TSG Partners, which is a San Francisco-based uh, uh, private equity firm with investments in Pabst and Sweetwater. Interestingly, BrewDog, of course, has been vocally anti-corporate. Uh, they quit selling Lagunitas and BrewDog pubs after Lagunitas sold uh, out, I guess, uh, and cuts against their ongoing equity for punks crowdsourcing from 46,000 investors who will be able to sell 15% of their shares. They plan to go public in five years. Uh, last year, they made 144,000 uh, barrels. Yeah, it's interesting. The, that last fact was kind of surprising to me when I read the news. I thought... They'd, they'd grown to become a... Yeah, 144,000 barrels. Uh, you know, it's like not that much bigger than Nkasi, which almost no one, none of our listeners even really know about. Cause True, although in the context of a market which is one-sixth the size of the U.S., I suppose. Mm-hmm. So, you know. But I got an email <laughs> from them today. <laughs> Offering to uh, do an interview with James Watt. Which you told me about. Well, I was excited. Oh, okay, we can adjust the timing of the pod for this. Yeah. And I said, hell yeah. And so what did that. he have to say? He Then they, they never got back to me. He stood you up. And they said in that podcast how they were invading America and going to crush craft beer, which is big talk from somebody who only made 144,000 barrels last year. Yeah, and who didn't show up for the interview. So I know. Come on. Who's, who's in our brood dog house now? <laughs> <laughs> Hell hath no wrath like a podcaster scorned, right. a beer writer scorned. <laughs> uh, you should do the next one. Um, yeah, uh, we. This is sort of a we can almost say friend of the pod. Uh, why not? The they, pod didn't exist when he became our friend, but that's right. Uh, there's a an English brewer named Dave Bailey in Cumbria at the Hard Knot Brewery, mm-hmm. um, whom we met when we were uh, traveling around a few years back. Um, and he, he makes a kind of traditional English style, uh, cascales mm-hmm. <clears throat> and his brewery has been around for, uh, 11 years, but he's had a really hard time making a go of it. And he posted a blog post recently, uh, that talked about, uh, he's going to sell his house and use the equity to, yeah, <laughs> Patrick makes an, an, a nervous face, <laughs> uh, invest that in the brewery and and try to get things going he's last four years he's only sold a thousand barrels a year um this is sort of a the flip side of of uh brew dog it's a brewery in the uk when you're little it's it seems like it's much harder to keep things going mm-hmm. um and make it profitable and he that he had the the hopeful sign with his blog post was that he's going to take that money and do something creative and interesting and make it try to make a go of it which he did not divulge but yeah well that's good i mean one of the big themes what we're going to talk about with craft beer is access to markets and it's one thing we learned in england 
access to markets is tough. Yeah, it's a totally different ballgame. And, and when we talk about uh, the stuff today, we can remember these two stories as kind of uh, different markets, different different models. And uh, if you've got a thousand barrel brewery in the United States, um, unless you're making terrible beer, you should be able to have a fairly successful, if not enormously lucrative business. Yeah, and you shouldn't the, be putting your house on in the, the UK. Craft beer is still still nudging its way into traditional retail outlets and pubs are often tied and right and so. it's and i think it to sell in places like tesco you have to basically you know you're making almost no money on that so you have to have enormous volume which yeah uh, we, small cask brewers which dave it doesn't right uh, yeah well good luck to dave yeah so that's not exactly new so much as it is a, a framing mechanism for um the segue into our main topic. We wanted to uh, discuss these issues, so we key on uh, BrewDog and, and Hard Knot. Mm-hmm. Uh, but first, we would like to remind you that uh, the Beervana podcast is uh, sponsored by the Guinness Brewing Company. Yes, and we appreciate Guinness's support. We do. We're, we're very delighted to have them. Yep. Uh, and we, might have, we might even be able to get a new splitter. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Take some of that nice Irish uh, money. Uh, and uh, they have a new beer out called Irish Wheat. Yeah, which you, we were discussing just before we decided recording the, the pod. And this is, this is fascinating. It is a fascinating product. Go ahead and uh, describe. Just tell me what you were telling me about this. Well, the first, the first interesting thing is um, it uses 50% wheat. And mm-hmm. that all of that wheat is grown and malted in Ireland, ah. which is sort of interesting. Okay, cool. Uh, yeah, also, yeah, that's cool. Um, and it, one nice thing is it uses Mount Hood hops, which if we were sitting in the right part of Portland. Super cool. Yeah, we yeah. can almost see from your window. But that's right. A few buildings in the way. Exactly. <laughs> a little squat house here. And tree, <laughs> trees and houses occlude our view of, of the, the namesake of that hop. Uh, but the interesting thing is, so it's fermented with uh, re- the regular stout yeast. Mm-hmm. But um, they do a ferulic acid rest, okay. which geeks will know is this this uh, uh, during the mashing process mm-hmm. is a low temperature rest that uh, releases ferulic acid, which certain kinds of yeast can produce uh, use to produce um, the famous kind of banana esters and phenolic cloves, the clove the the clove flavor. Uh, that is famous in Bavarian the Weizens. German wheat, yeah, the Bavarian Weizens. That's right. Uh, but they're using their stout yeast. They're using their stout yeast. So do we know whether it produces these esters? And we do because they say it does. Well, I mean, well, they say it does. But cool. uh, and we should, yeah, we should be clear. We have not yet tried this beer. No, it's it's. I, I think it, it, it's possible. It's in the United States now. It was it was a pioneered at their little test brewery at the brewery called right. the Open Gate Brewery, and they moved it over to to the big brewery and it's just about to hit the market. So I'm not sure if it's even available, but it will be in the United States. Right. Probably by the time you listen. So so if their yeast does produce these banana clove flavors, that means it's a POF positive yeast strain. Of and course. you know what that means, of right? Of course. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> it means it's perfectly optimal for plus <laughs> it means that it's uh this is a funny thing. Um the reason I think they call it POF POF positive mm-hmm. is because what it stands for is is a, a really offensive little slander against these kinds of yeast it stands for phenolic off flavor ah. it's positive for phenolic off flavor so mm-hmm. the big lager breweries were trying to figure out which yeasts would give weird flavors and they tagged certain ones that would produce this or this flavor 
uh, of, of clove, this phenolic. And excise them. <laughs> and exactly, <laughs> right. them, exactly. But it requires a yeast strain that can do this. Otherwise, if you use a phenolic, uh, ferulic acid rest, you still won't get those qualities. So it's interesting that the stout yeast that Guinness uses and has used for decades or centuries actually is a POF positive strain. It's wow. just kind of this a is, weird, this is, quirky thing. This is quite a... Quite a uh, uh, I don't know, a left turn for a brewery built on stout, huh? It is. And then uh, there, uh, you, you've, I'll let you mention the last dot, which I think is also cool. Oh, the, oh, the, the, brewer, uh, the brewer, who's yeah. a young Bavarian brewer named uh, Jasmine, I assume, Winterer, uh, which, by the way, seems to mean they yet have another female brewer, or brewmaster, maybe. Yeah, they're really into the... They're cornering the market on female brewmasters. That's there. awesome. It is. So, yeah. That's pretty cool. So we will look for that beer. See our, see our pod on women in beer, or the women of craft beer. I can't remember what we called it, but see that one to hear more about the women of Guinness. Exactly. Uh, okay, so uh, let's get back to our main yes. topic then. So or thanks, Guinness. We'll look topic. for your beer. and um, everybody Yeah, we should. Look for their beer. Yeah, hopefully we'll, we'll see it stateside sometime yep. soon. And we'll that's give the it plan. A, yeah, we'll give it a taste and maybe let people know what we think of it. Yeah. By the way, completely... Uh, coincidentally and those of you conspiracy theorists probably won't believe this but uh i uh was drinking the rye pale ale last night because i still had some in my fridge oh. uh, and really enjoyed it yeah so. i don't believe that at all i think you're completely fitting <laughs> the part that i enjoyed it or the part that i had it <laughs> the part that i had it sitting around my fridge should be no surprise if you've seen yeah that. no that's not a surprise <laughs> that's completely plausible i have such a jumbled beer fridge that i all of a sudden i have all these epiphany these discoveries i make oh hey i still have some guinness rye let's try that all right uh so uh uh jim cook in the oh i have it here april 6th 11th uh, april 8th thank you <laughs> in the april 8th uh new york times which i think was sunday's new was a sunday new york times i believe because i opened it up and there it was uh wrote this op-ed called is there uh, is it last call for craft beer question mark um it's the 18th as we record this so that would have been a sunday past yeah that's right uh so uh uh jim cook is the founder of boston beer um he wrote this op-ed where he paints a stark image of the beer world today uh he trotted through a parade of the horrible uh, declining growth, consolidation, acquisitions, and that got into deeper issues. Distributor numbers that have fallen from 4,600 to 3,000, uh, which is more dangerous in a world of what he calls duopoly of ABI and Miller Coors. Uh, he concludes with this coda. Um, get some craft brew, uh, quote, get some craft brewers really talking and they'll tell you we are headed for a time when independent breweries can't afford to compete, can't afford the best ingredients, can't get wholesalers to support them and can't get shelf space and draft lines. The result, beer lovers won't have the broad range of choices they have today. Get some craft brewers together and they'll tell you that if we continue down this path, we may be witnessing the beginning of the end of the American craft beer revolution. Dun, dun. Dun. And he talks, uh, you know, uh, when you're in a position of like Jim Cook, the the um, always the best advice is to punch up, <laughs> and so he takes aim at the big conglomerates and and discusses how he thinks that they're anti-competitive and they're uh, um, achieving market 
concentration and consolidation, which is bad for craft beer, full stop. Right. Uh, which is not a, a unique view. Um, there, with with uh, the consolidation we've seen in some of the bigger craft breweries getting purchased by, by big concerns like ABI and mm-hmm. uh, Heineken and, and other, others, this, this is bothering other people besides Jim Cook. Yes. Yeah, and there's a lot of talk about what how to uh, what to make of all of this consolidation. There's a lot of worry, particularly on on the part, um, or at least the aspect of this consolidation that includes the distributor uh, business that ABI uh, controls. And so, what I thought would be um, a useful pod was would uh, was to talk a, a little bit through the economic issues. Um, and more specifically, to talk about how the government views market concentration, uh, consolidation, mergers and acquisitions, uh, what it is the government is doing, because uh, Jim Cook's uh, uh, thesis is essentially that the government is sitting on the sidelines and allowing this to happen, and that's a bad thing. So right. it's really a call to action to government to get involved and to prevent all of this anti-competitive behavior. And so I thought it would be uh, a useful jump. That would be a useful jumping off point to do two things. One is to geek out on economics, uh, which uh, I always like to do, and the second is to just talk about sort of the market trends in in beer and what we think about his his argument. Yeah, it's good for us to have this grounding in economics because those of us in the peanut gallery often voice our opinions sort of absent of any real structural knowledge about how <laughs> things really work. Well, I think it would be useful just to think just to talk through what you know what does the government do when they. Th- uh, when they look at markets, uh, uh, what are the metrics they use? How do they how do they decide whether uh, these kinds of um, market concentration is good or bad or anti-competitive, and and what's the threshold for them getting involved? So exactly. So let's ask that question. How do you know if there's a monopoly? Like what what what's the definition of monopoly? Monopoly. Well, so uh, m- monopolies pretty straightforward because it's just a single firm in a market um, and usually it, it's either uh, it's either a single firm because there are uh, artificial barriers like laws patent protection is usually the the most common example of a monopoly pharmaceutical company that has a patent on a new drug that they have discovered um, they're allowed mon- monopoly uh, status from the government as sort of a, a reward for all the money that they invested in and that's supposed to spur investment uh, you can also have things called natural monopolies which arise because um, there are unusually large fixed costs in a business. And one one example would be uh, perhaps the um, oh, distribution of residential power that requires an, in, an incredible network of wires and, um, and transmission lines uh, to get to houses. It doesn't make sense to have two firms competing uh, and having two sets of wires uh, because mm. it's just too much money to split the market, right? It's too much, right. It's too much cost to... Uh, to invest to split the market, so um, the the regulatory response to those types of businesses has generally been to uh, allow a monopoly and then regulate them. And this happened, by the way, early on in cable television. Mm-hmm. So when cable television came about, they usually started d- divvying up markets. Um, they would say, "Okay, you can be the sole franchise that that sells cable television to households in this area, but then we're going to regulate what you can charge." So clearly, there's not a monopoly in beer. I can purchase uh, beer from a variety of So clearly of not a monopoly in beer. Right. So but, what, what, but the bigger question is whether there is uh, whether there is market concentration enough that it starts to harm consumers. So okay. this is really, the only reason government gets involved um, is to prevent harm to consumers. And what does 
harm to consumers look like in markets? It's when there's too few goods being sold at too high a price. Hmm. Um, and how do you... D- so there's got to be a calculation. Not just so first that, off, the, you can't just eyeball the term you're the term you're looking for is oligopoly. What we what we call markets in which only a few firms compete. Ah, right? okay. Um, so that's the different. That's the that's the midpoint between between uh, uh, competitive markets and monopoly markets or oligopolistic markets, um, and most markets are somewhere between purely competitive and monopolist markets. So there's always some kind of concentration. The question is, how much is too much? So before we do that, we need to start with the fundamentals, which is before the government can think about whether a market is too concentrated, they have to understand what the market is to begin with. We've talked about this a little bit on the pod, which is, uh, and let's just talk about craft beer. Is the market for craft beer uh, just craft beer? Or is it beer? Or is it alcoholic drinks, including wine, uh, light, uh, soft alcoholic drinks, I guess, or, or light alcoholic drinks, including wine uh, and other malt beverages, or is it all alcoholic drinks, including including spirits, um, uh, or does it even include non-alcoholic drinks? Um, so the first thing they need to do is um, understand uh, who um, uh, who exists or who, uh, who is the market or what is the market, and how they do that is a couple of ways. Um, the the uh, standard that they use is kind of a little bit hard to explain, but um, they call it a small but significant non-transitory increase in price that would result from a merger of two companies in the same market. What? So, <laughs> yeah, which which is a little bit more arcane. I think I can ex- describe that quickly, but I'll get to a better measure quite uh, quite easily. Some of us are religious studies majors. So okay, I just want you to know that. But let me give let me give a simple example that you can understand this. So. Uh, let's suppose we're talking about, and the example I use actually is from a textbook. I should full disclosure because uh, it was a good one, so I stole it. Um, <laughs> I don't remember which one though. Uh, so they're talking about let's talk about German luxury cars. So think about BMW, Audi, and Mercedes Benz. Okay. Okay. So clearly they're all those three all competitors. Um, I think that's pretty clear, uh, and I would imagine any metric would would confirm that. So um, if those three are the market and Audi and BMW merged, it's quite likely that we would see uh, a increase in price in German luxury cars because of it. If there's only three competitors and they went down to two, uh, the market concentration would be enough that would allow them to withhold output a bit and increase the price of the cars. Okay, you said obviously. It's not obvious to me. Why is two... What's the difference between two and three? Why not four and three? Uh, okay, well, let me let me let me put you off for a second, and I'll and I'll get okay. to that bit, uh, uh, because um, the second bit is well. Let's suppose that in fact BMWs and and Audis and Mercedes are actually in a bigger market that includes Japanese luxury cars and American luxury cars and um, French luxury cars and Swedish luxury cars, and in fact uh, there are, I don't know maybe fifteen manufacturers that all have competing products. Well, then it's much less likely that the merger of Audi and BMW would allow them enough market share to increase a price significantly. Okay. And so that's that's one of the standards they use. Um, an easier way to understand whether uh, uh, two firms exist in the same market is what we call cross-price elasticity, and it's a very simple concept. It's just does the demand for my product um, change when the price of your product changes and vice versa? Does the demand for your product change when the price of my product changes? So for example, you might expect that, uh, oh, 
if a customer goes into the store looking for a macro beer and they find that Bud's on sale today, and so they decide they're going to buy Bud today rather than the Miller they usually buy, the Miller the Miller High Life, um, or vice versa, um, that would show up in market data very easily. Mm-hmm. Today the sale on, on Bud happened and Miller sales went down, and tomorrow the Miller sale go Miller goes on sale and Bud sales go down. So those are those are one way to identify. Those are clearly competitors. And that the government uses that standard, but also firms use that standard as well, or use that metric as well to understand who, who I have to worry about in terms of competition. And so the more, uh, the more tied to pricing uh, changes these things are, the more concentrated it is? That's a, a metric uh, of concentration? Uh, no, that's not a metric of concentration. That's just a metric of who, who are the competitors. So you can oh, then go... Oh, so see. for example, if I'm the government and I'm worried about concentration in craft beer... I You're could, trying to find out what the market is. I okay. could figure out, yeah, I could use scanner data from markets to figure out whether there is big price sensitivity among other craft brewers. Is there price sensitivity? So when the price of Bud goes down, do I see the sales of uh, uh, you know, Deschutes go down? In which case, aha, so it looks like they do exist potentially in the same market if I find evidence. When wine prices change, do craft beer sales change? When spirits prices change, do craft beer sales change. I don't know the answers to these, by the way, but I suspect that um, a lot of the uh, price sensitivity is among uh, uh, beer sales. Um, and I bet there is a f- there's some amount of uh, cross-price elasticity between macro beer and craft beer. But I also think that it's probably a lot stronger among other craft brewers. Mm-hmm. But so this is one of the things, this is the first thing they would do if they're looking at big beer mergers. So they're trying to figure out, does Miller... Do Miller and um, Miller Coors and and uh, Anheuser Busch uh, exist in a great in a bigger market where there's more competition? Do their beer sales are they affected by other brewers? And I suspect that they are. Um, I suspect that the government has determined that there is a pretty healthy healthy competitive marketplace. Um, in other words, they haven't singled out macro beer necessarily and thought okay concentration is getting really heavy what they have done is they've identified the market as a market for beer and in most places probably have determined that there's a fair amount of competition so let's go back to the the concentration because jim cook argues uh 90 of domestic beer production was in the hands of two foreign owned brewing giants actually one of them is not foreign owned but his point is that yeah, and, and foreign owned is neither here nor there. Yeah, right. So that, that's, uh, the government doesn't polishing the apple there, but the point yeah. is ninety percent is. But it's an important point because yeah. he brings it out. He brings out the boogeyman of foreign ownership, and that's really not what the government cares about. The government simply cares about sure. But is it, but if, but if two companies own ninety percent of the market, is mm-hmm. that how do we evaluate that? Yeah, so two companies own ninety percent of. Uh, sorry, what what was his definition? Uh, he says uh, here. Ninety percent of domestic production, I think, is what he said. Oh, the dead air—it's a beautiful thing. No, no, I see. Yeah, sorry, I'm looking. I was just trying to see whether that was the measured in sales or measured in volume. Oh, interesting. Right. I, it's got to be volume. It's got to be volume because sales, uh, sales. Yeah, it's volume. I'm sure yeah, it's volume. because because craft beer is expensive, and so exactly. sales. Yeah, yeah, so that's what. Was, so, um, yeah, so not necessarily. Uh, uh, okay, so let me let me just be while we talk about that. So that would show up in something we call uh, concentration ratios, um, uh-huh. which is uh, one, 
so when you start looking about at concentration in markets, there's a couple of ways you can do it. The, the simplest way, but kind of crude way, is called the N firm concentration ratio. And that basically ranks firms by the biggest to the smallest and measures their market share. So one firm might have a 20% market share, another firm might have a 15% market share, 10%, 5%, for example. So maybe, maybe those are the top four firms. And so the four firm concentration ratio would simply be the sum of those concentrations, um, which I think I said 20, 15, 10, 5 maybe. Sure. <laughs> so that's what, 50%. So the top four firms can demand 50% of the market. So that's one way they can do it. Um, it's a little crude because it doesn't measure the, the, the difference between those firms. So it could be that one firm owns 49% of the market and, and the other two all have, you know, 0.25 of the market, something like that. And that would be something quite different. So there's a more subtle mar measure called the Herfindahl index, which basically um, is the sum of the squared market share. So it basically gives a bigger boost to, or, or, or weights more heavily uh, the bigger companies. So in this case, this would be a pretty high if, if, Let's suppose if it was um, if those two companies each controlled forty five percent of the market, so point point four five share, uh, and then a bunch of other companies had a smaller share, you would you'd square those shares and sum them up, and you'd actually get a pretty high concentration ratio. Um, and in fact, uh, usually the government starts paying attention when that measure is over point two, and so a point five four five squared would be. Um, uh, what 0.16 or something like that, or 0 0.17, 0 0.18. So the sum sure, of yeah. the sum of those would be over 0.2. Trust me. Yeah, that's, <laughs> so, that's what I have. Point yeah, 0.18. Right? The point is that yes, the government would would pay would be paying attention. <laughs> okay, so we're getting close, is what you're saying, to be having a concentrated market. You're certainly getting close enough. You, you, you're big enough to start for the government to start paying attention, and that's and then they start trying to define the market. They'll use other measures too, which is how. Um, uh, contestable is the market, and that it means how easy it is for someone else to get into the market. That's really important, and I think that's a big factor in craft beer as well. Because the only way that you can charge a premium for your beer based on market concentration is whether you can maintain that market concentration without any barriers to entry. Um, and in craft beer, arguably, there's some small barriers of entry just because it's kind of capital intensive to get started, um, but not not that. It's not that hard. It's pretty easy to, to start a craft brewery. Um, so it's very easy for new companies to come in and, and join that market if they see high margins. Mm -hmm. So that's a big factor when they're thinking about uh, antitrust. Um, if, if those companies are able to sort of create barriers to stop other co companies from coming in, then it becomes much more of a concern. Mm -hmm. And so here's where I think you bring in distributors. Mm -hmm. Because yeah. in a regular market, if I was just able to take my beer and sell it wherever I wanted, uh, then it would be highly contestable. I think it's a little less contestable uh, given the fact that distributors um, uh, control a bit of the access to markets. And not access to markets is, is an issue. Um, getting shelf space in grocery stores, getting tap handles, and, and so on. Okay. Contest, remind me, what, what did you just say about contestable? What does this technical term mean? Contestability means how easy it is for a new competitor to come and compete in the market. Okay. So a contestable market is somewhere it's very easy for someone to come along and start competing very quickly, which means, uh, let me give you an example. Suppose that I, um, uh, I'm, uh, I'm trying to think of a very simple market to use. How about a farmer's market where uh, I notice that I'm the only guy who's got tomatoes to sale? 
for uh, for sale, and, uh, and there's no other farmers who are growing tomatoes for some for some reason. And so I think, hey, you know, I'm going to jack the price of my tomatoes because if anyone comes to this farmers market and want a tomato, they can only come to me. Mm-hmm. Um, so if it's if the farmers market's full and nobody else can join the farmers market this year, then I have kind of a captured market. I've got market power, and I can keep my prices high um, potentially. Uh, if on the other hand the market is not full and new vendors can come uh, at will, then anyone who comes along and says, hey, this guy's selling t- his tomatoes for $2 a tomato. This is ridiculous. I'm gonna, I have a whole bunch of tomatoes. I'll come and sell them for cheaper. Then that's, that's a, an issue of contestability, and that erodes my ability to con- keep my prices high. Pretty soon I won't be able to sell my tomatoes if, if new people come along. So it seems like uh, beer is, is uh, highly contestable or whatever. There's... It's, yeah, it's I would say that beer is highly contestable in the fact that it's very easy for these days for new brewers to start up and start selling in the marketplace. Yeah, I'm sure if you're a little tiny brewer and you don't have very much money, it doesn't feel that way. But when I go to the grocery store, I have access to, uh, even not even in Portland, if I'm in Arizona or something, I have access yeah. to uh, you know, maybe 20 different companies' products yeah. uh, at, the, at the beer rack, which seems pretty... Right. Okay. So there's. So I guess there's. It's. It's not only the current competition, but it's the threat of competition. So if I if I keep my prices too high, I invite new competitors to come in, and that will keep me from from keeping my prices too high. So there's two. There's sort of two standards. One is the current competitiveness, and one is the threat of future competition. Right. Now, this whole distributor relationship is one that can keep it less contestable, and maybe is allow allows for more market consolidation. <clears throat> That's one of the trickier aspects, I think, of the government's oversight oversight of this market is that distributorships, particularly in in, in the case of uh, Anheuser Busch, which I know has a massive distributing network, um, they have an advantage in terms of access to markets, perhaps that others don't. They totally do. Yeah, Jim Cook, by the way, makes this point. He says that uh, in the past, um, and I'll get the stats here in front of me, um, in 1980, he says there was 4,600 wholesalers in the country, and most markets had four or five competing wholesalers. Today, fewer than 3,000 remain, and in most local markets, over 90% of the beer is controlled by distributors for those same two companies, uh, one of which is dependent on ABI InBev for most of its volume, and the other on Miller Coors. Yeah, and I don't know how true that is, uh, or I'm not sure that that statistic is actually very relevant. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and I know this because I was recently talking, I'm working on a book for uh, the Widmer Brothers Brewery to write the biography of Kurt and Rob, the founders of that brewery. Uh-huh. And so I've been talking to old timers and I was uh, talking to this guy named Paul Romain, who is a, a lobbyist for the beer industry going back to the 1980s, mainly for bigger beers, but he was also involved in craft brewing. And I, and I was asking him about dist- distribution and um, he actually represented the, the, the organization of distributors. Mm-hmm. And he said, uh, he told me an interesting thing that I found really fascinating, which was back in the 80s, every single uh, beer company that was for sale in the city of Portland had their own distributor. So right. Lucky Lager and, 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 and Pabst and, and Ole and Blitz, they all had their own distributor. So, <laughs> it was, so you only had maybe like nine or ten products available. You had nine or ten distributors. So there wasn't enough variety for, to justify independent distributors. I don't know why that was. It just seems weird to me. Um, but anyway, we've we've come to a, a new system where it's easy to have a bunch of different products on the same truck. So distributors represent more uh, uh, breweries. And the, the big question is, are there enough distributors 
in a city that you can get your beer on that truck. And right. I don't think that that number falling to 3,000 really tells us anything. Yeah, yeah. And then the other part of the number, which it seems interesting, is that if 90% of the beer is brewed by the two big conglomerates, then the fact that the 90% of the beer is distributed by the two big conglomerates <laughs> right. seems... Well, I don't know. Seems logical. Yeah, I think we're going to, at some point, we've been threatening this for a long time. Uh, we're going to get a distributor on in, in here and talk to him. About we have this. to. I really want to learn more about yeah, that we, side of the business. It's a it's a really fascinating uh, part that we, we haven't explored as much as we should here. So let me wrap up the geeky economics part with this sort of conclusion, which is that uh, Jim Cook asks why the government hasn't gotten involved or hasn't done more. And I think that the reason they haven't done more is that the market is considered a fairly robust competitive marketplace uh, because they define the market as a market for all beer, including macro and micro and, uh, and everything in between. Um, it's uh, a highly contestable market, meaning that there's lots of reasons why uh, consolidation won't necessarily lead to high prices because they don't want to invite more competition. Um, and that even though there is concentration at the top, these other factors mitigate any sort of special pricing pricing power. Um, what Jim uh, seems to be concerned about is how, how much they'll restrict the access to markets and essentially push uh, uh, craft beer off of store shelves and off of tap handles. And to that, I can just, uh, my, my rejoinder would simply be that um, the the two aren't perfect uh, substitutes. I know that. Um, well, let me re rephrase that. I, that people who run uh, supermarkets and and bars and and uh, pubs are small business people who are very much invested in trying to find products that people will buy. And I don't think that simply the leverage of of the two big conglomerates is going to push all of these products off the shelf if they're selling if they're what consumers want. Right. And I'm going to use that as a segue mm -hmm. to do something that I never got to do in college when a professor <laughs> laid a bunch of serious things on me, which right. is I'm going to crack a beer here. Uh, oh, that's I, right. Yeah, we got to get to our beer. And, and, and I, want to, I want to say that um, the thing that you just said is a, is a really good opportunity to get into this because um, one of the biggest problems that Jim Cook didn't mention is that he's trying to sell a beer that not that many people want anymore, or that, that it's not as hot as it once was, which is Boston Lager. Yeah, so we should talk, yeah, so we should pivot now, and we should actually talk about what's going on and what I think he's reacting to, which is what we've talked about a number of times, that these large regional, even now national, what we might call craft brewers, or what, choose the term you want if you think that one's loaded, uh, are struggling. So, uh, Boston Beer is struggling, um, Sierra Nevada are struggling, and Widmer is struggling a bit. And so we decided to go out. Uh, it's not my best work. <laughs> no, this is, this is a, a very large head you've discovered. <laughs> uh, so I decided to go out and, and try and do a little of market-based research, which basically meant me going to Safeway this morning. Uh, looking on the shelves and seeing what these bigger brewer, bigger craft brewers are doing to try and stay relevant in the marketplace. Right. So they're back out. They're out there in the marketplace, and people. So like uh, Boston Beer is trying to sell um, Boston Lager, and it's becoming harder and harder because it's been around for thirty years. That's right. And people are looking for something new, something different. Yeah. And apropos of Jim Cook's point, by the way, when I went to Safeway, it was very hard to find any Boston beer at all. It was a tiny little section. There's a little bit of 
Boston Lager, but there was this Rebel Grapefruit IPA. Which is one of their new Rebel IPA line beers. And when you think of Samuel Adams, the first thing you think about is... Rebel. Grapefruit IPA. Oh, great. (laughs) My point being that they're making a big pivot now, right? I mean, they built their brand on... (laughs) Thank you for being a good foil. Uh, They brought their brand on this Boston Lager. And that's not what people want to drink these days. What they want are super fruity... Uh, infused IPAs. Uh, While we wait for the head to settle, you might as well smell it since it is. Very I smell early. some grapefruit there. Yeah. Um, and so uh, I did find a theme. This was almost by accident. I was just looking for sort of these new kind of trendy beers. They all turned out to be fruit infused beers. <laughs> so we have the Sam Adams. I'm uh, sorry, the Boston. Well, no, they do they do brand it Sam Adams. The Sam yeah. Adams uh, Rebel Grapefruit IPA. We have the Sierra Nevada Sidecar Orange Pale Ale. And we have Woodmer's uh, Hefe Hop Fruit. They'll be very happy with me that I said Hefe. I, I, I took note of that. <laughs> Having been working with this brewery uh, the last couple of months and talking to guys, especially Rob and Kurt, I've been trying to be very cognizant to say Hefe. And also Hefe Weizen, not Hefe Weizen, which is the... The typical American pronunciation of that. Yes, and right, we going. appreciate it. And that's actually one of our very first pieces of fan mail, which was from uh, Rob, I believe, who gently reminded us that he would prefer if we called it Hefe, not Hefe. So Hefe Hot Fruit. And this is a brewery uh, whose name is mispronounced by almost everybody in Portland. It is uh, Widmer Brothers, mm-hmm. which everybody says Widmere. Oh, Widmere, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've gotten bad about that. Um, this is not half bad. No, but it tastes like grapefruit juice. It does not taste like a beer. Yep, that's what the that's what the punters want. I guess. I well, I'm not a big fan. I'm not a big that's fan. That's what of, Jim Cook thinks they want anyway. Yes, or some marketing department that decided that this is what's selling. Uh, I give Jim all the credit. I yeah, I'm not a big fan, a, and particularly great. I don't know what it is about grapefruit. Um, although we'll have another. We'll see whether it works better with wheat beer. Um, it's fine. It's really, it's really fruity. The grapefruit um, sculpin, I'm also not, not thrilled with either from Ballast Point. I think I like this better than the grapefruit sculpin. It's I think I might too, sculpin. because the grapefruit sculpin is like a super hot bomb, and then grapefruit on top of that was just like exactly. It's a bit clashing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. This is, this is harmonious in the sense that it tastes like grapefruit juice. So <laughs> <laughs> it really does. Uh, yeah, it's spring now, so I guess it's not a big surprise that you'd find all these fruit-infused beers coming out. Yeah. Um, you know what? I, I, so we're going to talk... I think that's all right. One, one of the things... Let's just... I'm going to pose this question that came up to us. Uh, came when we were discussing the pod beforehand, and, and we can just kind of let it float there and maybe come back around to it later. Mm-hmm. But the question was, um, is there room in the marketplace for mid-range breweries... Um, like Sierra Nevada, Widmer. Uh, did you consider? Did do you think is is Boston beer? Are they are they big enough that you don't consider them middle the middle tier? I so well, so okay. I guess yeah. So I had this theory I floated um, to Jeff, uh, which was perhaps there's no room. There's no there's no room in 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 beer now for the the middle uh, the middle ground, and, and this is what I meant. By it. it wasn't so much a size thing, but on one end you have big macro brewers who can brew perfectly good beer, but at just massive scale, mm-hmm. which gives them an enormous cost advantage. 
and um, they can brew decent uh, versions of lots of these beers. Um, and then on the other end, you've got this incredibly robust but very local, uh, very um, mutable uh, craft beer scene. Where nimble, nimble, yeah, this craft beer scene, and so you. Um, so you can get lots of stuff that's local, that's relevant to you, that's constantly changing new flavors, new varieties, um, and uh, beer drinkers are willing potentially to pay a premium for that. Uh, well, they are because so beer drinkers pay a premium, but for that type of beer, right? And then they'll go, you know, and then for the macro beer drinkers, they're they're excited about a price point that's uh, very manageable, and and so the question is. Can you have people who are willing to pay a premium for a bit of higher quality beer, but without that sort of local connection that's become less sort of new and exciting? Uh, that's kind of a legacy beer. So I'm really thinking about like the Sierra Nevada Pales and the Sam Adam Boston Lager. And um, these, are the, these are the kinds of things in the past, at least, that you've had to, if you want to be a national or a pretty large regional brand, you need to have a couple of flagship beers that you're selling. Yeah. And I'm wondering whether there's a market for that anymore, whether it's being hollowed out by, by all of the, the robust local scene. So you, it didn't actually occur to me. You bought this because Sierra Nevada also has had a, a, a peach IPA, which you could have bought. But I'm glad you bought this because we now have two of these other beers here, uh, the Haifa the and the Sierra Nevada Pale here. Mm-hmm. These are brand extensions. So this is another kind of interesting phenomenon that we're seeing in, as big breweries try to Heart, you know, because these things sell hundreds of thousands of barrels. Like there's, Sierra Nevada still makes hundreds of thousands of barrels of uh, pale ale. Yeah, and one of the things that inhibits their nimbleness mm-hmm. is that that's their that's their baby, that's their thing. Right. And so, what do you do with that? And so, some breweries are trying to do what uh, what Boston Beer is doing and creating this whole new Rebel series of IPAs, which uh-huh. is like an entirely new brand. Right. Um, and then others are doing brand extensions on what they're already known for, and we have two examples of those here. Right. So that's I throw that out there. I yeah, know. that's I don't a know good where point. I'm going with that. Yeah, we we haven't yet seen the grapefruit. Uh, Boston Lager. <laughs> so that would be an example of a brand extension if you tried to monkey with Boston Lager. Um, yeah, and 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 quite frankly, the past five to ten years has, has seen a lot of what I would consider sort of flailing around by these bigger breweries trying to figure out what works. Yeah. Widmer tried a rotating IPA series for a while where they weren't going to have one. They were just going to keep sort of rotating through uh, seasonal varietals of IPAs. Um, I w- that was good for a while, but it seems like that didn't stick. And, uh, Sierra uh, Nevada has tried to do... They've been the least promiscuous of all the big brewers. They've been mm-hmm. the most disciplined. They release a beer and they really support it. So they, you know, one of the first kind of surprising beers they came out with was uh, Bavarian Weizen. Mm-hmm. Um, they have their Nooner, Pilsner. Mm-hmm. And they really back these things. But um, but we're also seeing now they have the Peach IPA. They have the Sidecar Pale. Yep. So we're, we're seeing some of that stuff too. Yeah, so here's the Jim Cook world, which is that you're having a hard time competing with the big macro brewers because of scale. Mm-hmm. And yeah, so distribution is part of that, and access to shelf space is part of that. But it's all sort of part of those economies of scale. I would I would argue, um, not the classic ones, which are sort of you know tank size and things like that. Um, so they're having a trouble trouble competing on that end. But I think what they're really getting beat up by is the, all this incredibly uh, robust craft beer scene that's at a local level. Um, and I think this is evidence of it: the fact that we've got these beers here that are. Um, 
Uh, yeah, your phone's ringing. <laughs> <laughs> like, there's some buzzing going on. Um, uh, the, anyway, so, uh, sorry about my phone. These beers suggest that what, what they're trying to do is become is stay relevant in the craft beer market. Um, rather than sort of chisel away at the macro brew, and I think maybe in the early on it was all a it was all a, a war about wedging your way into into the macro brew world, getting shelf space next to Budweiser. But now it's all about sort of staving off the competition from below. Yeah, which I think is interesting because he tries to punch up Jim Cook does in this article, but I actually think that what he's really feeling is pressure from below. I think that's right because uh, we saw a wonderful. I think that his his uh his op-ed inspired a ton of responses mm-hmm. if you were following on twitter and the blogs and stuff and the one that i liked the best was uh greg dworsky from threes brewing uh in men's journal wrote a wonderful kind of reply from the, the small brewer perspective which is from from where he where he stands uh boston beer which has distribution in all 50 states mm-hmm. and uh has a giant production and has the kind of access and and, and uh, leverage that he would could only dream of, looks like a pretty solid. You know, it's like he, it's hard for him to imagine complaining about that. Mm-hmm. And when he goes to the grocery store and when he goes out to the pubs, he sees plenty of uh, diversity, and he doesn't he doesn't really feel the sense of, of doom that that Jim Cooks feels. Right. So, and it was, I thought it was a really uh, a nice reset and one of the better. Uh, re- re- it wasn't really reactive. I really admired him for not just getting in a pissing match with Jim Cook. It was really a kind of thoughtful response. And yeah. I think that's the way many consumers feel is that we don't, at the moment, feel constrained. When we go to the grocery store, there's plenty of beers on, on sale. When you go to the pubs, there's plenty of beers available. There's breweries everywhere. You can go to the breweries and get beer there. That's right. And and sort of to put to put it really starkly, we don't necessarily lament the decline of Sam Adams, right? I think that's right. Because there's plenty of other good alternatives. And so um, you, we, so this is actually a good segue too because we were talking about sen- sentimentality and uh, um, you've now poured the, the sidecar Orange Pale Ale because you talked about being sentimental about Sierra Nevada and I was much less so being, being the heartless economist because uh, I'm all, all about creative destruction, baby. You are. So, and I am a, I, I'm actually not a sentimental person in, in general, but um, when it comes to old breweries making extraordinary beer, I become kind of sentimental. So when you talk about your DuPonts and your Rodenbachs and your Schneiders and your uh, Budjavicki Budvars, I get a little bit tetchy about creative destruction. And I feel that way about, <laughs> That's true. Uh, I feel that way about Sierra Nevada, which I think is, um, you know, one of the, the finest breweries in the world, certainly one of the finest breweries in the United States. Mm-hmm. They make... No doubt. They make amazing beer. Their commitment to quality is off the charts. Yep. Um, I can't remember ever in my life purchasing a Sierra Nevada uh, and feeling like um, it was a rebel grapefruit, you know. <laughs> it, it was uh, something that they hadn't put some seri- serious thought into. Uh, well, um, that's a good point uh, to talk about the sidecar orange pale ale. Yeah. Uh, so I, I looked at the package, Dawn. I think we may be suffering a little bit from an old beer here. This mm-hmm. beer is over four years old. So um, that's a problem. This beer was packaged. The beer in the bottle is over four years old? Yeah. It was packaged uh, three weeks before Christmas in 2016. 
Uh, okay, so that's not three years. Let's just be clear. Oh, sorry, three, three months. months. <laughs> sorry, three months. Three months. <laughs> Old brain. Oh, you get off being serious. Three. Three years to be impressive. For, since I was going to say, three years ago, they figured out that the market would want orange pale ale. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. It's a little bit of an old beer. And I think the liveliness in the, the aroma. Yeah, I was going to say, it's, very, it's got a very subtle touch. So that would be, the, that would be the, the polite way to say that maybe it's not as bright as it would normally be. I think it would, it's not as bright as it would normally be. That tastes like a beer. I gave it that. Yeah. It doesn't taste like fruit juice. I feel unqualified to judge this beer without getting a fresher bottle. Okay. Uh, which sort of neither here nor there anyway. We're trying to make a point about how these bigger breweries are reacting to market changes. It does make me a little bit sad because I think Sierra Nevada's brand um, for 30, 40, 35, 38 years, whatever it is, has been quality uh, and kind of commitment to craft. And... Uh, you know, so much of the direction of American brewing has followed Sierra Nevada. So I, I it kind of hurts my heart a little bit to see them following. Yeah, I'm not sure. Brand. I'm not sure what the end game is for these breweries. It's hard to it's hard to know. Um, you know, we talked a little bit in, in the past. It's interesting, and from a, from a firm theory perspective, this is interesting. Like, if you're Sierra Nevada and you're opening up a second brewery in the East Coast, do you call it Sierra Nevada? Do you does it brew the same products? Uh, do you use it as an opportunity to create something new and different? I think a better question would be Deschutes because Sierra mm-hmm. Nevada had been selling beer in Virginia or wherever the for a long time, is. yeah, for yeah. a long time. Whereas Deschutes, it or or other breweries that are opening on the East Coast that yeah. have not already been selling there, yeah, uh, where nobody knows them, and where this weird brand from Oregon doesn't mean anything to them, right? So do they go and brew seventy five percent of their beer is Mirror Pond and and uh, um. Uh, I'm forgetting the name of their porter. Black Butte. Thank you, Black Butte Porter. Or do they create something entirely new? And besides, these are all play Oregon place names that they're using to uh, uh, to brand their beer. So do they come and get a whole new what's in Virginia, right? A whole new Virginia based Roanoke, Virginia. Yeah. So it's it's a whole new Virginia based <laughs> Roanoke, Virginia. But you forgot Black Butte. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> <sighs> I'm old. Yeah. Old mind. <laughs> it's its 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 own mystery what, it what, is. what gurgles up to the top. <laughs> exactly how that goes. Uh, so that would be an interesting, I mean, I could argue that start over again. Like you have the Deschutes names, so you've got some sort of imprimatur of quality perhaps, or at least, and then, and then create a whole new line of beers, and that allows you a fresh start. Um, re- reason I I talk about firm theory is that we often sort of discuss what in the, in, in industrialization or at least firm firm based economics we talk about what uh, what is the natural boundaries of the firm like should, you know why do some firms have HR departments internally why do some firms outsource their HR mm-hmm. you know w- w- what makes the natural why are firms um, uh, uh, sized the way they are and incorporate what they do and so this is sort of interesting like would you just double what you're doing if if that seems to be a losing strategy or would you just create since you've since you've created a new brewery would you just create a whole new brand or at least pantheon yeah, the, of beers and then and i think another question with that is how, how strong is the brand elsewhere maybe people want to shoots i don't actually know yeah. if people are clamoring for the shoots but then you don't want to abandon the thing that they're interested in 
Yeah. I, <clears throat> I would think maybe a hybrid strategy. It'll be interesting to see what they do, but you can have you can have Black Butte and Mirror Pond, but then maybe start doing a whole bunch of local stuff. One thing that is definitely becoming a, uh, a kind of article of faith in craft beer is that local is important. Everybody mm-hmm. talks about local. Is that a... F- is that a, a truth in other industries? And uh, do you think it's actually, should it be an article? Is it, is it actually a, a faith-based ar- argument or is there some, do you think there's some hard economics behind this? Oh, well, I mean, you know, demand is a funny thing. Demand, demand for products is, is a function of lots and lots of things. I think that, you know, we've talked about the artisanal movement in general and sort of people getting back to, to what's local and what's, uh, you know what's fresh and what's um, uh, what gives consumers a connection, some kind of connection to a person, to a place. So I think that craft beer is all part of that, and it, I, I do think it's a thing, um, and I think it's a reaction to. And this has been going on for a couple decades, a few decades now. This reaction to this big industrialization that happened in the 50s, 60s, 70s, where everything became industrialized. You know, we ate our peas canned, and we had our bud from St. Louis or whatever. Um, so I do, I, I do think it's a thing. I don't know if it's a thing, um, you know, I don't care that my iPhone is made in, in China. What about your, uh, your Toyota? If it's manufactured in Kentucky versus Japan. Yeah, see, I think that's completely, especially these big conglomerates have completely exploded this idea of, look, because what's local anymore? I mean, you have, uh, you have Japanese corporations that are making their car entirely in the u.s and you've got u.s companies that make their cars in mexico and send them back to u.s so uh i think that in a large swath of consumer products it's a global marketplace and 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 uh origin doesn't matter but i think that almost sort of plays into the um into the demand for local in these other areas in this stuff that you feel very I don't know, close to things that you eat and drink and uh, maybe even um, uh, stuff that you wear or, you know, th- these are other artisanal products. I think that's a big part of it. Partly this sort of reaction to the industrialization and globalization. All right, I'm going to, by the way, I have the Hefe hop fruit in my hand. <laughs> and I'm going to pour it out. And I would just like to give you credit for having a Woodmer glass you like that to go along with the Widmer beer and it has one of those old uh no longer made ipas branded on the front <laughs> it does. Uh, by the way the other thing i noticed in the store and this probably won't uh matter to most of our listeners but um Widmer made a as they're struggling to find the next big beer they came up with this thing called drifter pale which I think it sold well for a while, but quickly died off. And I just noticed that there's sort of it's a, there's a revival of Drifter. You can buy Drifter now in the stores for a limited time. They're calling it a seasonal. Ah, nice. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think it's I, I think there I think brands matter a lot. And our sponsor Guinness is a good example. I think one of the things that's most important about Guinness is the fact that it's from Dublin, Ireland. I think mm-hmm. you know people relate to that location as much as they relate to anything with that beer. And well, that's interesting. I think they relate two huge things to Guinness. One is the Irishness, and the other is the stout. And they're clearly trying to get away from being known as just a stout company, but they're definitely playing up the Irish. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So let's go back to that question of uh, whether there's room mm. in the market. Oh, I'm going to declare. Okay. I'm going to declare that grapefruit goes better with wheat than it does with hops. <laughs> I should not 
evaluate this since I yeah you don't get you don't get to give an opinion because you're in the 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 pocket yeah Yeah. you're we don't want to hear what you have to say how wonderful it is how the most amazing beer ever no but actually it's you know what I like I'll I'll be objective I don't get any of your money I like myself a good uh, hefe hot fruit is what I like in the evening (laughs) hefe that's satisfying Uh, that's not bad they did they did one. Widmer last year had uh, a, a summer seasonal that was really light. I'm trying to think if it had lemon in it or... Hefe shandy is the word you're thinking. Hefe shandy, that's it. Thank you very much. Yeah. That was quite nice too, actually. Yeah. They, because they have a very a very good, nice light touch with the juice. They're going for the uh, brand extension and they're they're looking for what flavors work well with the wheat. And, uh-huh. uh, so, Which is interesting because, you know, Guinness, to use the other example... Going for the Bavarian Weizen is like a total out of left field. It's yeah. like radically off the. Uh, it's like as opposite a stout as you could go. Exactly. Yeah. So that's why I, I mentioned that when I said I think a left turn or some. I was using some crude. Out of left field is really what I should have said. Uh, yeah. So I think that's a way to really try to break uh, from a marketing perspective. Really, <laughs> what on earth is going on outside your house now? Uh, we have so much construction. Boy, the sounds of the sounds of inner southeast Portland, folks. Oh, I'm sure that you have construction happening at your house too. I'm sure we, but not be, like right outside the front door. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, that's almost not true. Yeah, I bet it's we not have, true. We have a, our a entire house, house being remodeled across the street. Everything about our city is being remade right now. Yeah, it is a, a dizzying time in Portland for that for that reason. Yeah. Uh, what were we talking about? Oh yeah, so so I imagine that it's a, it, they're trying hard from a marketing perspective to really uh, break free from the the shackles of just being a purveyor of stout. Okay, so you do firm theory. You're an economist. I am. I do. Your brain is still largely functional. Uh. Uh, <laughs> what? Uh, how do you answer your question? What? What? What's the What's the future look like if you're a, a Widmer? A, a, Boston Beer, uh, Deschutes, uh, one of these companies. Yeah, this is fascinating. And this is, um, so y- you know that I'm a big craft beer uh, um, I'm really say. interested what the next word is going to be. Yeah, well <laughs> <laughs> I could uh, provide a lot of alternatives probably. <laughs> uh, I'm uh, I was going to say cheerleader, but that was not quite right. Uh, I believe that craft beer is very healthy it's a very healthy marketplace. I know that it's slowed down, but I think that it's a very robust product that's not going anywhere. Um, okay. So I think that craft beer full stop is doing fine. I also think that macro beer is not going to go anywhere. We've had a little discussion about this, but I think the big brewers are here. Um, it'll be interesting to see whether, for example, AB InBev can turn Goose Island IPA into a real sort of st- stable national. I, I still have my doubts hmm. because I think that that's too contestable with all these local ones but they can come in with a pretty darn good price point so we'll see right but what we've seen why i get a little uh uh dubious about that and and to your point what we've seen is that you know things like sierra nevada pale and boston lager they're starting to struggle uh and they can prov- and they have a pretty good price price point they they're big enough that they can provide those beers at a pretty good price point and yet that seems to be part of the market that's getting pecked away by the robust local local scene uh so i think that it's tricky to be um a sierra nevada a boston brewing i think 
uh, it'll be interesting to see the Deschutes example. I think Deschutes has done well sort of maintaining its status as a regional brewery, but now that it's going sort of more national, I think it's going to be interesting. I, well, I mean, I have, I, I have some trepidation. I mean, the, these mid-sized breweries, they have, they have some advantages. They have, the two, they have the two disadvantages of they don't have the economies of scale to compete with very big breweries. Right. And they don't have the nimbleness to compete with very small breweries. Exactly. So Thank they're you. getting kind of a crunch. Thank you for saying very clearly what I didn't. Uh, they do have a couple of you know, big advantages, which is they have brand recognition. That's, right. that's worth a lot. Um, they have credibility to, to a certain extent, although um, one, of the, one of the issues with craft beer is it's such a young person's game these days that I think, you know, legacy brands don't mean anything to the youngsters. Um, Although they do have some appeal, uh, there's, you know, old old American brands are starting to have some kind of resonance with the consumer, yeah. Yeah. E- even when the product itself is not necessarily that distinctive. I'm not sure that these are old enough, like, you know, the hipsters discovered Pabst and that was cool for a while. Yeah. Uh, I'm not sure that it'll discover Sierra Nevada and make that cool for a while because it's not as... Uh, iconoclastic is sitting around drinking Pabst in a in a craft beer bar or something. That's because you're so old. You don't realize how. Old well, this is true. This is this is, <laughs> this is very true. I'm reminded of every year when I'm in my class, and the students are still the same ones, but they're completely out of. T- I'm completely out of touch with their culture now. Yeah, it's sad. Well, let's throw that out to the audience. Um, it, it, you know, what do you what future do you see for these breweries? What's the moves they should make? Is Introducing, so I just want to go on record. I'm not an economist. I don't even play one at home. But I want to go on the record and say that for the most part, I think following trends is not a good move for big breweries. And yeah. putting out, um, there's a there's a very successful beer. I wrote a blog post about it called 805. It's made by Firestone Walker, mm-hmm. but they mostly branded it just as 805. It has its own website, and you look at the label. It says Firestone Walker, but it says 805, and it's like literally an order of magnitude bigger font. Okay. Um, it's a golden ale. Mm-hmm. It is. I've never tasted it, but I read a bunch of reviews, and it's just. It sounds like it's just a golden ale. It's right. not really anything distinctive, um, but it's gone totally crazy popular. Uh, and so, so what, what? What? What are we seeing now? All across the United States is people releasing golden ales. Right. They're trying to catch some of that lightning in the bottle, mm-hmm. and I'm just not sure that. I mean, I get how hard it is to create the first. The 805. Like, I, Firestone Walker was as surprised by it as anybody. Right. Um, and it's very difficult to create a strategy that hinges on catching the lightning like that. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, it seems like you at least have a shot that way. And aside from getting some, you know, a few sales for uh, one or two quarters with these kind of gimmick beers, or not gimmick beers, but follow the leader gear, beers, mm-hmm. um, it damages the brand. Uh, it makes your core product less desirable because it doesn't look like you're really very distinctive. I don't know. It just seems just generally not like a smart move to me. Hmm. That's, yeah. So I'm going on record and saying, don't do it. Yeah. Well, I have, you know, I have a lot of sympathy. However. And I have all the credibility as this famous blogger and podcaster. So I'm sure that this will carry Absolutely. enormous weight. Yeah. <laughs> well, I have a lot of sympathy for the, you know, for people who are running a business and their, and their, you know, their mainline product is suffering. And they're trying to figure out what next and which direction they should go. And um, so it's it's good advice, but I don't really know what the alternative is um, for these companies. 
I don't either. And you're right, uh, particularly when you're a large brewery and you've got a lot of capacity sitting there. Putting one of these beers out that will sell well for a quarter or two and take up some capacity and keep your volume up. Um, it's hard not to think of it in, you know, incremental steps and yep. keeping, keeping things going. So I get that. Yeah. Nevertheless, I still think, I don't know how many of these I would release. Yeah. So uh, interesting. So in the end, um, my take is that, uh, well, I guess another question you could throw out to, to our listeners too is, you know, what, what do you think the government should get more involved? Do you think there's there's more there there for the um, for the antitrust people at the Department of Justice or the FTC to to try and uh, uh, preserve more more of a competitive marketplace for beer? Or are you like me, not too concerned? Because um, I'm not too concerned. I just think what we're seeing now is the natural evolution. I just think it's a fascinating market in that I wonder, as we've talked about, whether we're going to end up with a natural equilibrium is some really big brewers and then a bunch of small ones and not a lot in between. Yeah, I worry so. about that too. And I think uh, I think everybody worries about that. So we see uh, uh, big beer entering the craft space and all of a sudden everything. The competition feels... Um, somehow more dangerous when it's Goose Island owned by AB as opposed to just Goose Island. Yeah, although I'll say, and again, I'll be a heartless economist and say that, you know, I don't really care. Uh, I mean, I care about people, of course, but but if it's a if it's a Goose Island beer that's just as good as a um, Sierra Nevada beer, then fine. So one What if it's not? One's, well, if it's not, then it's different. But one's owned by AB and one's owned by... Uh, wait a minute, is... You, is Sierra Nevada a public company, or is it just Ken Grossman's company still? I think it's private, yeah. Oh, okay. So uh, what I care about is... Boston the, Beer is public. Right. What I care about is the beer, um, fundamentally, uh, to the extent to which... But you know that the best beer, the best product doesn't always survive. As a long-time sure. Betamax <laughs> fanatic... Uh, should I, should I tell, should I tell yeah, you, you why should. Betamax is superior to VHS? <laughs> <laughs> One of the first uh, lessons I learned <laughs> was from my friend Patrick, long before he was a professional economist. You realize that 85% of our listeners don't even know what a videotape is. <laughs> Much less one that was obsolete by 1988. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's true. But that's why I'm, the reason I'm so uh, sanguine about it is because there's so much uh, activity on the ground at the local level, so it's fine. You know, maybe I have to pay a little more, but I'll pay a little more, and I'll get something local that's just as good or better or more interesting. That does seem like a terrible view, and you seem like a terrible human. And, and everybody should write in and tell Patrick why he's wrong. And I'll think about it, composing a blog post to refute that terrible view. But in the meantime, all right. Uh, so uh, uh, before you go, because mailbag and Sherpas are coming up next, but I'm gonna. Uh, wrap up. We had the grapefruit, the Rebel Grapefruit IPA, which is heavy grapefruit, uh-huh. very grapefruit juicy, but not like terribly clashy with the, with the hops. So it's not that. So I I actually think it's a pretty decent example. Yeah. Well, I'm just not sure how much I like grapefruit and beer. I'll just say that. I also don't think this feels a little flavored malt beverage to me. Like 
it's mm. it's okay. We're drinking it. You know, I don't hate it, but I just don't. I don't see. I don't see even five years. There's going to be any grapefruit IPAs on the market. I just think this is going to be one of those weird yeah. fads. It's like also we, one of these we should things. Save these bottles of all the. And so we look back. Oh, you remember back when the grapefruit IPAs were a thing? I think you're exactly right. I don't think this is gonna this is gonna stay around for that long. Um, and I will say that uh, I don't think that I would sit around drinking a whole bunch of these. Right? No, this is one of these so. things you drink once, and then there's not a lot of Moorishness there. There's not. And they, the one thing about this grapefruit IPA is it does have a lot of residual sweetness, and it does kind of coat your tongue. Mm-hmm. After one, I think I would. Mm. And the sidecar is a little old, the yeah. orange pale. But, um, but I actually think it's a much subtler beer and, and nicer that way. The underlying... Um, Pale ale is, of course, really good, and I'm enjoying that. I yeah. don't know if it's exactly the same one as their regular pale ale. Yeah, it's hard to know because it's three years old. <laughs> <laughs> but if it's representative of what a fresh one is like, then uh, <laughs> then I think it's a very nice, subtle touch with the with the juice. Uh, and my take on the Hefe, which you can't, which you're not allowed to discuss, um, is that it's probably my favorite of the three because I think the wheat is a better blend with the juice. Um, with the caveat being that again, I'm not, I'm not crazy about grapefruit and beer. It has that really sort of um, super tart snap, the grapefruity snap. I think it's a little bit better with the lemon, but yeah, it has uh, not only the tart snap, but it has that um, rind like there's a bitterness in grapefruit. Yeah, and, uh, that's what I'm trying to describe. You, you're better at this stuff than me. I think that it's that bitterness that with, with uh, you know, it's trying to evoke the grapefruits you find in. Uh, in hops, but mm-hmm. they don't have that same no. quality of bitterness. It's yeah, exactly. So it's kind of clashing. Yeah. All um, right. One thing I did, uh, I I ordered one of these, and I have a friend, Pam. I give Pam a call out. I'm sure she'll never listen to this <laughs> podcast, but uh, she likes beer. She doesn't like hops very well. Mm-hmm. And I was drinking this. I was like, oh, this is great. You'll love this, Pam. Uh, and she tasted it, and she's like, that's full of hops, which I was not even... And then I tasted it. Oh, yeah, you're right. It's quite a few hops. In there. I'm not really paying that close attention to it. So that's funny. They put more hops in here than you would know. Pam is my kind of canary coal mine, and she was not high on it. So anyway, that's another surprise about the spirits that it has more hops than you would expect. All right, let's uh, let's move to the uh, to the beer sherpa. Actually, we have a we have a mailbag which we can talk about um, uh, quickly here, and then we can also discuss in our future pod our upcoming pod on on ipas but uh brian bolduck writes um and we'll get cut to the chase here breweries use ibus heavily from packaging to pr announcements uh, to menus but as we're now seeing um if a beer's ibu count uh, we're now seeing that a beer's ibu count doesn't tell you anything about a beer's perceptible bitterness (coughs) so how useful is ibu as a metric in today's craft beer market yeah, uh, it is a great question and one that, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, we could talk about and we'll talk about a lot in detail. Actually, um, just had a post yesterday uh, that talks about how dry hopping, mm-hmm. surprisingly, and this was something that we were tipped off with Tom Schellhammer, right. contributes a fair amount of bitterness to beer yeah. and why that is. Um, and And... Apparently, it can actually be read as as similar to IBUs, mm-hmm. but it's a different kind of bitterness. I think I, I wish if I could go back in time, this is the one thing I would change about the entire craft beer revolution is I would find whoever was the first one to start using that metric and say, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it. Because <laughs> it, 
It captures, there's, hops have at least three main qualities, and we could argue there's even more, but that it contributes bitterness, contributes flavor, contributes aroma. Uh-huh. And when people taste a beer now, uh, and they perceive the hoppiness of the beer, right. there's some melange in their brain of mm. these different factors. Yes. And it can be very low IBU and very high flavor and aroma. It's super hoppy. And super hoppy. So yep. it's super hoppy, but it has, you know, weird, uh, bitter, uh, it has a weirdly low IBU score, but it's, a you know, quite a hoppy beer yeah. in this other way. So the way we understand hoppiness today that we love, I mean, America has become an IPA country. Yeah. And the things we like about IPAs are only partly related to bitterness at all. And and yeah. many people don't even love bitterness. Like people like IPAs, I don't love bitterness. Right. So it doesn't tell people anything. It's a yeah. terrible thing. Also, uh, most breweries don't actually do uh, chemical analysis to find out what the actual IBUs are. So they're they're doing calculations based on how many hops they put on. An algorithm, yeah. Yeah, an algorithm. And so even the and those are usually not quite accurate, and sometimes they can be pretty inaccurate. Yeah, we've discussed that the algorithms don't capture late editions well at all, the, the contribution to bitterness. Yeah, totally. And they sometimes, uh, I think they don't capture what happens after fermentation. I think it's a, a post-boil metric. So so you, so you, so I'm hearing that you think that IBUs should just... We shouldn't be talking about IBUs at all, essentially, yeah, in answer I, to his question. I think you, I think everybody should ignore IBUs uh, in, unless you're looking at something like a, uh, a Hellas or a Pilsner and you want to find out if it's a very bitter version of that. And you can just kind of tell, you know, if it's if you're looking at a, a Pilsner and it's got 20 IBUs versus a Pilsner that's got 45 IBUs, right. that will tell you something. Yeah. But, it, but, it, but if, it, if it's... I would be happier if we got rid of it and didn't even know that. Yeah, well, I, the, I guess I guess to add to your point, I think that that IBU, that the metric IBU was was used as a marketing tool for a long time, and that's what's and, and so it got elevated as this big thing about beer, um, well well beyond its usefulness, yeah. right? So people, so IBUs is like the one thing that a casual beer drinker might know. Oh yeah, well, what about the IBUs and not and not anything else about beer? And so it became this sort of well, we talked about the arms race, IBU arms race that happened for a while. So that was probably not terribly helpful these days. And so now these days, yeah, I don't think the IBUs tells you a whole lot, especially about these modern IPAs. Yeah, and it, and and the problem, the other the other big problem is it's 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 um, uh, made it impossible for us to talk about hoppiness without talking about IBUs. Right. Right. And so we we don't really have you know it's given us a poverty of uh, a, a linguistic poverty mm-hmm. in talking about hops. Yeah, that's right. Uh, and it seems like it's going to be hard to transcend that now because we have these damn IBUs. And if we, you know, breweries will often use flavor descriptors, but it doesn't tell you how intense they are, what what the intensity level is, and how, you know, you go, you'll read like a, you know, a Bach has subtle citrus notes, and then you taste it. And it says, of course, it tastes nothing like an IPA. So, the, <laughs> you know, the citrus notes, you can't evaluate from the, yeah. from the label anything so are there other metrics that allow us to describe uh relative things like uh hoppiness aroma i mean so you so so i you know we have words we can say that describe the characteristics but whether it's a lot or a little is hard right it is hard i don't know i'm gonna put my mind on that 
try to think of. So that's one of the, I was going to say, because that's one of the things that IBU allows us to do. Oh, it's a lot. It's a little relative to other beers. And there's very other, right. the very few, there's alcohol content and there's IBUs that are pretty, pretty, like the two big relative measures. Right. Other other than that, it's very hard to talk in relative terms or yeah. in some kind of absolute. So anyway, uh, thanks for the question, Brian. Yeah. Uh, we we are planning an, I, an IPA podcast soon. In which the history of IPA. Ooh, I'm looking forward to that. That's right. going to be fun. <laughs> okay. Uh, you have a beer sherpa for us? I do. Uh, which, again, is our history lesson through beer or something. <laughs> yes. So I was writing, I just wrote a, uh, an all about beer article on uh, cream ale. Uh-huh. We, and I tasted a, I, I did it on uh, Genesee cream ale, Jenny Cream. Ah, uh, yes. Which is one of these these kind of classic legacy brands that I think is old enough that it has uh, a kind of inspired a nostalgia yep. from people who were way too young to have tasted <laughs> it, you know, way back in its heyday. Um, it's just, it's just, an, it's just an old American brand. Mm -hmm. Um, and the cream ale is a wonderful beer style. Uh, I hadn't had a Jenny cream in decades, I mm -hmm. think maybe at least years. Um, and when I had my critical hat on, I tasted it. I was really surprised at, uh, how rich and aromatic, uh, it was and how different it was. So, it, you know, when Jenny, when Genesee released that beer, they were trying to create an alternative to mass market lagers that looked a little like mass market lagers. Right. But in fact, it's not actually very close to the mass market lagers at all. At all. It's mm -hmm. a really different beer. So the, that's not what I'm recommending. Although Jenny Cream is cool, go you know, try one and you know think try to think of it differently. I'm going to give you a different one, uh, which I tasted for that article called Beechwood Foam Top. Uh, Beechwood is a brewery uh -huh. in Long Beach, California. Okay. And they made one. That I think is almost an homage to Jenny, which I really, I really give them big props for that. It has a lot of the same characteristics. Uh, so the thing that I loved about uh, both of those beers uh, is that um, they both had a deep golden color, and you smelled them. Uh, they smelled a little bit like English ales, and mm -hmm. that's the thing that was really surprising to me. Um, they didn't. They certainly smelled nothing like lagers, even though they looked a little bit like lagers. You can't uh, mistake them. For uh -huh. lagers, uh, and when you drink Beechwood, there's this wonderful honey note right in the middle. It's very mm -hmm. sweet and um, really unique. I, it's not you don't really encounter it in other beers. Mm -hmm. um, it fades to a, a drier, crisper snap, and so when you finish a, a sip, what you want to do immediately is have another sip because it's got the sweetness and the dryness, the sweetness and the dryness, mm -hmm. and it's like amazing. And the reason people throw six of these down on a summer day is because they're just they're like ultra moorish right and i think uh, beechwood's foam top is I, I tried a few of them mm -hmm. for this thing and beechwood was was kind of the big winner as far as i was concerned as among american cream ales being made today so and, and you found that locally uh i had somebody send that beer to me so okay. i think it may only be available in california LA area. yeah maybe Maybe further in California. I don't know how far. That's right. But, but when you're when you're looking around, look for it. When you're right. traveling and if, in California, and if you can't find a Beachwood, try a Jenny yeah. and remind yourself. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, uh, that basically does it for this edition of the Beer Vana Podcast. Uh, as always, thank you very much for listening. Uh, thank you to All About Beer for uh, hosting the podcast, and thank you to Guinness for sponsoring the podcast. A few words going out about how to get in touch. Uh, Jeff blogs at the Beervana blog, uh, which is, by the way, kudos. Very slick, the new blog. Thank looking, you. Looking good. I know. I'm pretty proud of that. Uh, it's now at beervanablog.com. It's no longer a 
blog spot whatever it was that you had. I don't remember what you had. Exactly. And you can tell by its gorgeousness that I had nothing to do with this. <laughs> yeah. There's no, <laughs> no ham-handedness in that one. Uh, yeah. No, it looks really nice. Uh, so, and you uh, tweet at Beervana. Um, if you want to uh, get in touch with us, email at... Oh, wait a minute. There's a new email. You threw me a curveball. So Jeff at com. Yeah. No more beer acts. I'm sad for the beer acts. He speaks for the beer. You are... The last time we did this, you castigated me for that terrible thing because you hate to read Well, because it. it was Yahoo. That was the part. Not the beer axe part, the beer axe week. Oh, well, there you go. All right. So you can email us. Now you can email us at jeff at beervanablog.com. There you go. That's really emailing him, by the way, which is it's, how it should be. It's true. But I, I'll forward along to Patrick. We'll, you, <laughs> we'll both hear. Um, and if you'd uh, like to follow uh, Patrick's work, look for him at the Beervana blog. I'm and very elusive, however. Just you are very mind. elusive. <laughs> um, more likely to see him uh, tweeting at, uh, at Beeronomics. Yes. So look for him there. But we do want to hear from you. Uh, we love your questions, comments, uh, good and bad. Send them along, please. All right. We got a cheers. Which one do you want? I'm going to go for the Haifa. I'll go for this middle one. That is the uh, sidecar, orange pail. All right. Sidecar it is. All right. Cheers, Jeff. Cheers, Patrick.